Hi, and welcome to the inaugural episode of the Think Fast podcast. My name is Simon Smith, and I am your host. So, what is the Think Fast podcast? Well, Fast with two T's stands for Focused Advancement with Speed, Tenacity, and Transparency. Those are our core values at Benchside, a fast-growing startup where we're using machine learning to help scientists run more successful experiments so they can bring novel medicine to patients faster. The purpose of this podcast is to explore topics related to our values through interviews with people at Benchside who embody them, as well as other expert guests. We hope that by doing this, we'll help our colleagues and anyone else working in a fast-growing startup to achieve greater success and a bigger and more meaningful impact on the world. And if you find these values resonate, maybe you'd be a good fit at Benchside. You can learn more about our company and culture at Benchside.com. That's B-E-N-C-H-S-C-I dot com. In today's episode, given that it's our first, I thought it was fitting to interview Liran Bellinzon, CEO and co-founder of Benchsai. Now, I could give you Liran's background in this intro, but he does a much better job in the interview. So I think it's best if we just get to it. Hi, Liran, and welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Simon. You're welcome. It is a little bit strange because we work together on a, a daily basis. And so this feels a little bit artificial. So I'm hoping we can keep the conversation comfortable, casual, but also interesting for listeners. So I will do my best. I'm sure you will. And I'm sure you will be successful. I wanted to start because not everybody may know your background. What did you do before you joined Benchsai? It's a, it's a great story. How far should I go back? Well, may, maybe not to your birth, somewhere between your birth and when you started at Benchside. Sounds good. And I'll, I'll tell you also how my life came to be the way it came to be, because this was never what I imagined I would be doing or where I, I would be living in this stage of my life. So why don't we go back to when I was 18? I was, I'm originally from Israel. I was enlisted to the army when I was 18. I served for three years. And then what is very common in Israel is to, after you're enlisted in the army for three years, is to go travel a bit for a few months before you start school. So I did that and I traveled in East South uh, Asia for three months. And in a small town in Laos or Laos, I jumped on a minibus to travel to another small town. And there I met someone that recognized my thick Israeli accent and asked me if I was from Israel. And she was from Toronto. And we traveled together for a week or two. And that was pretty much it. And then I went back to uh, Israel after my trip. She went back to uh, Canada. And then I started my law degree and a BA. I had a startup that did relatively well, but it never had the potential, unfortunately, to scale to be a really big startup. And a few years during my studies, that same girl that I met on the minibus in Lao reached out. She came to Israel for a visit. And then we started dating for two years. We did long distance. I'm going somewhere with the story. And I decided that I'm going to move to Canada to be with her. So I finished my uh, degrees in Israel, sold the company, and came here to Canada. And it was really important for me to get local education if I'm coming here. So I applied and got into the MBA program and University of Toronto and the management school is called Rotman. And when I came here, there was one thing that was very clear to me, which was I'm never going into entrepreneurship ever, ever again. Like there is no way I'll ever do that again because my first experience was so difficult. I was 25 when I started my first company, probably did every mistake possible. I just did not want to do it again. 
So I thought would go into something like private equity or consulting or investment banking, because that's what I saw around me. And then I learned about CDL or the Creative Destruction Lab, which is a startup accelerator, University of Toronto. And that fire for entrepreneurship and startup inside me got bigger, bigger and burned more and more and more that I got super excited about it again. And I started working part-time at the Creative Destruction Lab during my summer break. And my job was to find companies or startups in the really early stage and convince them to apply to the program. And this, one of the startups was Synapsis, and now it's called Benchsai. And it was a team of three scientists that I met at a coffee shop in University Street. And immediately we hit it off. And I convinced them to apply to the program and they end up getting in. And I started working with them as a student and things went well that I ended up joining as a co-founder and CEO. And that was five years ago. And the company back then was four people. And by the end of this year, we'll be around 200 people. Something triggered for me as you were talking. And I don't know if it's something I've ever asked you before, but why do you think you are clearly so attracted to entrepreneurship? Where does it come from? And I know you also have a, a daughter. Do you think it's something that is nature or nurture? It's a great question. I think it's nurture. To be honest, just given my growth and what I've seen, and I'll tell you why I'm probably like this. One, probably my personality being very much okay with taking risks. And even there's a lot of risk in the story I just told you, which is like moving to a foreign country to, to, to be with a girl that I've been, I've been dating and maybe spend three months together because we're doing long distance. So I think it's very much related to how much I'm okay with the risk. And I think that is product of where I grew up and my surrounding. Two, I think that it's also what I saw around me. So my parents tell the story that when I was probably six or seven, I bought a chocolate milk uh, bottle and I went downstairs and started selling it to neighbors. I sold one for one shekel on credit and I never got it back. So that was my first lesson. But what I grew up with that really inspired me was actually my dad. So when I was, I think probably seven or eight, he got let go of his job after working there for 20 years. I didn't know he was let go until I was 18 because he just never told me as a kid because he didn't want to stress us out. But he basically three weeks after just opened his own business. And it's a small, medium business that I wouldn't say is, flourishing successful or big but it put foot on the table and i and it's doing relatively well and i've seen my dad work so hard his entire life but really really hard waking up at four and coming home at eight or nine so sometimes just crashing the office because there's so much work so i really saw that around me as someone that's been entrepreneurial and taking ownership on his own future and also my brother when he was 26 and I was probably 19, I was 19 at the time, he also started a startup. It didn't become successful, but I also saw that around me. And I think the combination probably of both, plus having a personality that want to make things happen and want freedom and I think a bit creative is why I'm so attracted to this. It's a great story. And I want to come back to some of your experiences uh, and, and learning and how it translates into the values at Benchside. But before we get there, let's just go back to your story when you were at CDL and you met the co-founders of what became Benchside. What was it that attracted you to Benchside? It's clearly in an area that's outside of what used to be your mm -hmm. circle of competence in the sense that it's in biology. What made it compelling to you from a personal and business perspective? 
And on a related note, what made you confident that you would be able to figure out the biology part? That's a great question. So there are a few books that I love to read, as you know. I love to listen to books because I don't have time to read. And I try to get through 20 plus books a year. One of the books that I read that is beside my table and every employee that joins Bench I get is a book called Zero to One by Peter Thiel. And I will actually say that book changed my life because I started working at CDL and got very interested in entrepreneurship as it's done in North America. And I grabbed the copy of Zero to One and I was just fascinated. I could not put the book down because I do think it's the best strategy and execution book to how you should be thinking about startups. And I, and I was reading it. I was just blown away and... In, his, in the book, Peter Thiel talks about seven, I think, I think it's seven, seven or nine, but I'm pretty sure it's seven, seven questions that a startup should answer, as, and the answer should be yes, to be extremely successful. And that was really eye-opening to me. And also what I realized from this book that, and, it, and the theme of the book is called competition uh, is for losers. How you do want to monopolize a space that you don't have competitions uh, competition in. And it was very clear to me, at least back then, that it's hard for me to think of such ideas because probably the ideas I think about, many other people think about because I don't have this deep domain expertise in a niche field or I was at that point in my career. I was a student at the time that I, I thought I saw something that other people didn't. So I just read the book and it really changed the way I think about startups and entrepreneurship and innovation as a whole, to be honest. And then I met Synapsis or Benchside at the time and I met Tom, one of our co-founders. Back then, he looked like a mad scientist to me. And I remember this, we were having coffee at university at the street at a Starbucks. And he was showing me this one pager that he created around antibodies and how it's a crucial research tool and the waste it exists and the impacts it has. And I left the meeting just thinking about the company and what they're doing. And it really checked all the boxes for me of the book I just read, which is zero to one which is why I got so excited about the company, plus the fact that it was actually doing something that was so meaningful. Like my first company was a B2B marketplace. It's, it's so far away in terms of meaning compared to what we're doing now and the impact we're having on the health of our society. So that's why BenchSci. You introduced so many things in there that as I was taking notes, I'm like, all right, we got to come back and talk about a couple of things, but I'm going to put those to the end and try to move forward with the bench. I, I think I didn't here. answer one of the, because you asked me two questions, why bench and how did I feel comfortable about the biology? My sense is from what you said, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it was partly the fact that this was a, an area that you weren't familiar with. And because there was domain expertise there, you knew that there could be success in that domain. And it sounds like you would have been attracted to things that had some area of expertise that they could own. And almost by definition, because your focus was business, that wouldn't be yours. But uh, yeah. I'm putting words uh, in your uh, mouth. Exactly. No, but, 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 but you're right. I, I, just, I just really sat with myself and thought, what is my job? And my job is not to build a technology because we have the best people in the world to, to do that. And the job of the technologies, technologists is not to build a business in the company around the technology. And I think just having an understanding of that, that each of us as founders will own the spaces that we think we are the best at and can be world experts in, and in a way trust each other a lot instead of each other's way, I think is the big reason why we're so successful and why we get along so well till this day as founders. In a way, we don't know enough about the other's discipline to get in each other's way. I actually think that is, is, is really key. And when I joined the company, there was so much to do on the business side that I wasn't worried about me not adding value. And I think people don't understand this, but being a CEO is a profession. 
it's not something that you also do. It's real work that requires 200% of, of your time. And my job is not to build a technology. And I also was okay to say, okay, this is what I'm not going to know. I'm never going to understand this like someone who has 20 years of experience as a PhD biologist, but I also don't need to. I need to understand it at the level, at a good level that allows me to do my job as best as I can. And that actually became an advantage because one of the challenges I think that technical founders face, especially at the CEO level, is talk about the product at such a granular level with a lot of jargon that is really hard to communicate the value to others. And that can be investors, that can be potential customers, partners, employees, and so on. And because I did not have that, and still don't have that deep, 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 deep understanding the same way that a PhD AI researcher has or a PhD biologist have, I'm actually able to tell the story of the company better and understand the company better because I don't have that deep, 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 deep understanding of every algorithm works or every logic or every piece of data works. Yeah. And I'm obviously biased in what I'm about to say, but one uh, of your strengths is communicating the story of BenchSci. It's something we've been very fortunate to have since the beginning. I, I want to follow up on one thing that you said and then talk about BenchSci's maturation and what's been surprising about uh, bench size growth to you. But before I do that, for anybody listening who is in the process of starting a business, how important do you think it is to have, at the very least, one business-oriented and one technically-oriented co-founder? I think it's extremely challenging to start a successful company without those two. And there's obviously exceptions that have been successful companies without one or the other. I think it's extremely hard as it is. Like there's over 90% chance you're going to fail when you start a company. Those are the stats. And it's, it's over only around 7% of companies that raise money, whether it's a seed or a series A, actually live uh, their potential. So the, the chances don't exactly improve as you continue to scale. I think that when you start, it's so hard that you have to have someone that is extremely committed to building technology and not working with an employee that can leave any day or even hire a company to do that. You really need someone, again, if your product has technology, which I'm, I'm assuming it has given the space. So I think it's really, really important to have someone that can own that and you can trust and you don't have to worry about that. At the same time, I really think it's important to have someone on the business side that can really understand the go-to-market side and what is the first step and what is the second and what is the tenth and really understand how to thread the needle and understand how to bring innovation to market. And this is something we talk about at Benchside around the definition of innovation. It's also similar to how we structure the company. For me, innovation is a combination of two things. It's an invention. And it's adoption or commercialization of that invention. That's what innovation is. And inventions without adoptions don't really make an impact in the world. And if that's really what you aim to, to do, I really think, like you said, it's really important to have both to be able to achieve innovation. I agree. And having been in startups before where there wasn't one or the other, including where I may have been the business person without the technical counterpart, you really feel that and see it. And I think there's also something to be said for the creative tension that comes between someone focused on business and someone focused on technology. Sometimes the business person will push the technology because customers are demanding something. And sometimes the technology will create new opportunities for business. And you really need people focused on each of those. Uh, I think that's a yeah. really good point. And I'm also a mentor at the Creative Destruction Lab. And which is a startup accelerator for really deep tech startups. So I see a lot of startups there that are very technical and are building amazing innovation. And for me, what I see the biggest challenge for those companies is the go-to-market and what are we going to do with this technology? Or what is the first use case? And the same way I don't think 
a CEO or someone on the business side can build technology. I don't think that should be also tried on the other side. I think you should get an expert, uh, someone that's business oriented, that can understand how to make an impact with the technology you're building. I really see that as one of the biggest gaps. I agree. We can come back to this. I want to talk a little bit more uh, about that, particularly in regards to building and scaling companies. But to get us a little bit back on track, so BenchSci, I've joined in September 2017, and BenchSci had already been running for a couple of years before that. How has it matured since you met the co-founders? What's been most surprising to you uh, about that growth? Good question. There's something I've learned, and I don't know if this answers your question, which is it's supposed to be extremely hard, but it shouldn't be impossible. And someone really smart told this to me a, a few years ago, and it, it should move, and, and it is moving, and, and nothing is easy, and nothing works according to plan. It doesn't mean you won't get your destination, but nothing actually works according to the way uh, you planned it, at least from my experience. But it should keep moving. I shouldn't feel like, oh, this is just impossible to do. And if it does feel impossible to do, maybe like you shouldn't be doing it. The other thing that I don't know if it surprised me, but what I've learned as my on my journey as a CEO, which is the importance of people skills. And it's actually a big part of your technical skills in a way and, and being in a position to serve others and to lead others and to care for others. It's so big and, and so important that you have really strong mental skills and really understand people and conduct yourself in a certain way. I feel very privileged to do what I'm doing and to be in this position. It's not something I take lightly. And I think that I'm just surprised how much people invest in let's call the technical skills but not in I, I hate this word but let's call it soft skills which i think are so important to be able to understand people the other thing i've learned which is why we're doing this podcast and why it's so important that it's all people and i've learned that more and more every day it's all people with your customers it's all people with your investors it's all people with the employees in the company. It's really all comes down to people. And I'm a strong believer that people are the company and the company is the people, especially at scale when you need to bring more amazing people and navigate to the right uh, direction. Because, and this goes back to things don't work according to plan. When we do our planning in the company and so on, we start with what's our mission for the next 10 years? What's our big, hairy, audacious goal we had for the next five years? What are the three objectives we need to achieve this year to get there? And then what are the objectives and key results that we need to achieve every quarter? And you need people to be able to navigate with the right judgment, uh, with the right skill set to get there. Because the reality is the world is very dynamic and things change all the time. And... People are the ones going to help you get there and giving them the autonomy and the mastery and the purpose to do that. I've learned that's extremely important. That's a great segue into talking about culture. Culture has been something very important to you. You, this year in particular, have invested a lot of time in mm -hmm. documenting our culture, communicating our culture, clarifying our cultural values. Why was that so important to you? Yeah. And why do you think that should be important to startups in general, yeah. even in the early stages? Yeah. So I think actually, I don't think successful scale, and this is obviously just my opinion, I don't think successful scale happens without culture. Because... If we go back to the definition of culture, which is in a way think, the way things get done around here, like the most simple level, and that's obviously comprised of values and for us at Benchside, leadership principles and rules of engagement and, and how we treat each other and so on and so on. And as the company was growing, your interaction with people, especially now in the COVID world, but even back then, reduces. You're not a bunch of like 10 people in one room and you know everything that's going on and you can very much 
influence the way things get done around here or how we work together as the company grows and especially as the company grows so fast um, you have new generations of employees joining the company people who are leaving like how are you going to make sure that the way we do things around here doesn't get lost again assuming that is the right way or a good way of how things should get done here the only other way i see of doing that is putting process in place uh, and a lot of process in place which takes away of people's autonomy probably happiness and purpose and slows the company down and as we talked before there's so much judgment that needs to go into especially into this especially when you're hyper growth and for me it was really around culture culture is the way that we scale and we don't lose our identity what really helped me in a way see the light or understand how important culture is actually came from two experiences in my personal life not related to business one of them was actually when me and my wife were traveling to japan and we were in tokyo and two things really amazed me one I've never seen so many people in my life around me, but it was so quiet. It was so quiet around you, the way people conduct themselves, the cars and everything. It felt like in a way you're alone. And the second thing was how people lined up to the, to the subway. And you can imagine how many people live in Tokyo. I think it's the biggest uh, city in the world. I think it's over 36 million people. It's out of that Mexico City, I, I don't remember. But the way people lined up in such a respectful way and not doing the semicircles of getting uh, into the subway and everything was so organized. And what was really amazing is that there was no one to enforce it. It was just the culture of people, of what their value and the way things get done. And it really amazed me, given also the culture I come from in Israel, which is there's no lineups. Everything is a semicircle of people trying to get into places. Another example was from actually the World Cup. There was there's this famous picture where Japan was playing in the, against another uh, team. And they took a picture at the end of the audience and the seats <laughs> where Japan fans were sitting and where the other team was sitting. And the other team, the seats were just filthy with garbage and everything. And the Japanese side were just extremely clean. No one enforced it. It was just the culture, the way things are done. So that actually really helped me understand, oh, wow, like culture really scales because no one is around here to, to force it. There's no processes. This is just what people value and the way they conduct themselves. And it actually works at the biggest scale possible. So how can we bring that to the company? The, the second thing that showed me the importance of culture is actually this current pandemic. So I am from Israel and... Israel turned out to be a world leader in vaccinating people and COVID is pretty much uh, done there. So every time I meet someone, they ask me about it and they ask me, why do you think it is like that? And the answer I give is culture. So it's, I think, and you can see this around the world, how different countries chose to act or to respond to COVID. So if we're in Canada, it's more of a lockdown. It's, I think it's a very social culture. And because of that, there's more emphasis of taking care to each other. In the U.S., the situation is different, as we saw with the spread and so on and, and leadership. And in Israel, for example, around the speed and the aggressiveness that they went after and the sense of urgency, they went after getting the, the vaccines, the Pfizer vaccines so early. I think that also is a testament to the culture there. Another thing is being the situation where there's a constant threat, which is pretty much surrounds Israel and being that mindset and having that culture is what helped them respond to this so fast. So those different situations really showed me, and this is just my interpretation, of course, show me the importance of culture and how it does scale to millions or hundreds of millions. And if it scales there, I think it can scale at Benchai as well. I think this is really what's going to be the glue that keeps us together and continue to guide us to make better decisions and right decisions and conduct ourselves in a certain way and treat each other with respect and not just achieve success, but achieve success the right way. Mm -hmm. Those are some great examples. I think when it comes to companies, though, one of the challenges is how to make 
the creation and cultivation of culture not seem so artificial. So in the case of countries like Japan and Israel, you have hundreds of years or maybe thousands of years in the case of Japan and um, Israel, maybe less time as an actual country, but still have thousands of years of history from Judaism. And then you have these companies and you have this culture that you want to build and you have to construct it very quickly. So a company's Mm -hmm. going to be maybe one or two years old when you need to start documenting the values and promoting them. How do you make it feel less artificial and more organically just part of the way things get done when you don't, you don't, you aren't able to rely on those hundreds of years of history? Yeah, I can share how we did it and how we redid it again. So when I think culture forms, whether you want it or not, people work together in a certain way. Habits are formed, rituals are, are, are formed, people care about certain things, and all, all of that is part of the culture and the way things get done. I think in the early days, the reality is it's very much shaped by the founders because they are the people who are starting the company and it's that culture to start. And then as you continue to hire, I'm assuming you hire people who are not like you, which is something that we really care about at the bench side but are a language of values. So adventure, for example, we really focus not on culture fit, but on, on value fit. So naturally you have some sort of a culture that, that's formed in your organization. So what was important for us in the early days, and I think we were around 15 people when this happened, was to codify it. I'm saying, okay, like we obviously have a culture here that already formed. Let's make sure that we codify it, that we align on it. And it's also the culture that we want and really started by aligning what our values are and communicating them. So the process that we took was twofold, internal and external. So the internal one, we actually asked every person in the company, which was not a lot back then, it was 15 people. We sent out a survey and asked them, what do they think our culture is? What are the values they believe in? What do they think the values of the company are? Why do they work here? And so on and so on. So we collected that data. I had a one-on-one with every person in the company. And in addition to that, we also made a list of around, I think, 10 or 20, comp- 10 or 20 uh, companies that we aspire to be like, that we really, really value, and looked at what are their set of, of, of values are. And by doing both, we put together our list of values, which is an acronym FAST, which is Focus Advancements, Advancement with Speed, Tenacity, and Transparency. And that's really how uh, we got started. And that was great when we went from 15 to 30 to 60 people. But then two things happen. I think when you get to a certain scale and when you double in size every year, and this is something that a principal engineer who was also at VMware shared with me that was really eye-opening to me. He said that you have new generations of employees joining the company. They don't know what the old culture was like. And it's not just enough to codify it. It's around how do you train them and make sure they truly understand that culture so it's not just something that's on the wall. And the second thing that happened was the transition to working uh, remotely and working from home that we lost those interactions, those rituals that we had before, the space that was very much aligned with our culture. And those two combined really increase the need to go beyond of codifying our values only to codify our entire culture, look at all of the processes, all the rituals, all the initiatives, that we, how we hire, what's our DI policy, and really look at everything that we have in the company that we're doing and understand what is our narrative as a company, how does everything align to what we want to become and the way we want to become that company. And it's related to everything, our Promotions and performance reviews are tied to our culture. Our benefits are aligned with our mission as a company. And that is how we are thinking about our culture uh, moving forward, that everything that we do ties to that. And it's not just around codifying it and, and sharing a deck. It's really thinking about how does everything we do embodies that culture and making sure that it's in our DNA as a company. That's a great overview of our process. I should probably also do the the public service announcement now to say that if these values are things that align with the way that you think, one of the purposes of this podcast is to connect with a lot of like-minded people. So uh, drop us a line 
you talked about the values, focused advancement with speed, tenacity, and transparency. Which of those do you think come most naturally to people? Which come least naturally? And then how do you overcome that and help people develop comfort or proficiency with some of the values that come less naturally? I think none of them come naturally, which is why we chose to focus on them. I think if those were things that come naturally, they would naturally happen. So these are things that we think are really important that are crucial for our success. And honestly, in my opinion, every other startup, and it's really important for us to focus on them and to emphasize them because sometimes it's not something that comes naturally. And I can give an example on each one of those. One of the big reasons the startup fail is because they're not focused. And one of the biggest problems when you start a company is not knowing, oh, what can I do with my technology? It's what should I not do? Because there's so many things you can do. That was true in the early days and even true for us now as a company. There's so many things we can do. And a lot of companies gravitate to that or CEOs or leadership and they do too many things. They confuse everyone, their employees, their investors. They have limited resources and they can actually create value in the world. Around advancement, growth is not easy, right? Like put yourself in situations um, of, of stress because growth is also an outcome of stress. It's not something that's easy, something, some, something that people sometimes shy away of, whether it's personal growth or even growth of the company. When you double in size of year, it's not easy. Sometimes people get complacent with the status quo and not constantly looking for things to how to do things better and, and to move forward. So I think that's another example. Speed is uncomfortable, but also really, really important. And it's not comfortable because personally for me and I know for other people who work at Benchside, we really want to make sure things are perfect and optimized and the quality is the best and we have the most robust process possible. And that's not going to happen when you move really fast. It doesn't mean you ship things are not in quality, but it also means that you can't be a perfectionist. And sometimes you have to uh, sacrifice that to move in speed. And growth is the number one indicator of successful companies after they find product market fit. Transparency is a really big one for us. And this is a decision that I made early on when we started the company. And it was very much influenced by Ben Horowitz and his book, uh, The Hard Things About Hard Things. And we wrote a blog post about this as well. Leaders don't, this is my opinion, that leaders or CEOs, they don't share what's really going on with people in the company because they are scared of how they're going to react to it. And for me, it goes back into trust and thinking about how many times in our life we make decisions that are really just come down to trust. We don't trust that if people have this information, they would react the right way. So I personally made a decision really early on that that's not going to be the case at Benchside. Everyone here care about the company. And because of that, they should all know where we stand. So they can have the information to make the right decisions to be successful. And see, many times CEOs hide it or tell a story, everything is great or fantastic. And you don't know until the next day, all of a sudden the company shuts down or, or gets sold or, or whatever it is. And I've learned that being transparent just leads to better outcomes. People actually do the opposite of what people assume they will do. They don't leave. They try and solve the problem. They care. They respond to things like, like adults. And I can share a few examples about that. And tenacity and grit. Like, listen, this is extremely hard. It's not easy. Nothing works according to plan. You have to be really creative and keep pushing forward and moving forward. Professionally, this is the hardest thing you can do, in my opinion, which is start a company and, and get it to this scale. And we really think each one of those five values is, is really crucial for us to be successful. And those are also people that I personally want to work with, people that don't bounce between different ideas and are focused and trying to make things better. And they move with a sense of urgency and speed to make an impact. And they trust each other and transparent and they're creative to find solutions. Yeah, I, I agree with you that all of those are challenging for people. I would say from my perspective, my opinion, that focused and transparency are the ones that people struggle with the most, not just at Benchside. I think generally in our society, 
we are constantly bombarded by notifications and communications. I think people are at the mercy of technology a lot of time. And I think as resources grow within a startup, you can do so much more that it becomes harder not to do things to your point. But the one I want to talk about a little bit more is transparency. And at Benchside, transparency isn't just about transparency with the finances and where the company is going and so on, which is the case, but also encouraging people to be radically candid, to give people constructive information and context, to confront things that need to be confronted and not let them linger and fester. And you mentioned before different cultures and you have coming from an Israeli culture, which is very different from a Canadian culture. So I think some things come much more easily to people depending on their cultural background. So could you talk a little bit about transparency in the context of interpersonal relationships and candid feedback and how to encourage that, especially in a culture like Canadian culture, where people are incredibly polite and often apologizing when they should be holding other people accountable? Yeah, that's a great question. And Shopify's uh, CEO talks about this as well, where they also promote Radical Candor, uh, which is a great book that by, by Kim Scott that every manager at Benchside uh, gets. And we have programs around that as well. And he talks about how, for example, they struggle with Radical Candor in their Canadian offices compared to their US or office in Israel, where it's much more part of the culture to say things as they are. Now, I'm not saying that where my culture is from, which is Israel is the right way to do it. I think there's actually a great mix that I've went through this transformation when or adjustment when I came here, finding the right balance between being direct in a way that can insult you to the other extreme of not calling out things and saying them and finding the right balance in between that I now believe that you can say anything to anyone as long as you do that in a respectful, caring way. And what I've learned is most of the time when we don't say something to someone else, it's because of us, not because of them. It's because we don't feel comfortable of how that will potentially make them feel. And we're actually trying to prevent ourselves from being in that uncomfortable challenging emotional situation and that's something i and i care deeply around so many people that, that work at the, the company that, that that i work with and that i know and sometimes i have to give them difficult feedback and i challenge I have some challenges with that myself and i always understand it's just my emotions and i've never been in a situation where i gave someone honest direct feedback and they were like you're an asshole it was always like, thank you for talking to me about this. It's probably hard for you to talk to me about this. I was not aware this is what I have been doing. And, and you and I, Simon, had those conversations on both sides. And the relationship is always just much better afterward and, and closer. And I, th I think there's a way to do this and also being vulnerable of saying, listen, it's hard for me to give this feedback because I don't want to hurt your feelings or anything like that. But if you truly care about the other person, but truly, truly care about the other person, then you should be honest with them and, and really try and understand if you're not honest with them, why? Is it because of you or is it uh, because of them? I think this is something that I hopefully have improved upon in the past three years. And I think it's a lot of working closely with you and other people who are more direct I think that some people mistakenly have the belief that if they're overly polite and spare people's feelings, that that's a good thing. And it may be a good thing in the short term, but in the long term, you're depriving people of information that they need to yeah. get better. And I think that's actually harmful and not a good thing that you're doing. 100%, especially if you're a manager, right? So at Benchside, we have weekly one-on-ones with all the managers and the employees and quarterly light performance reviews and people ask for 360 feedback about each one of their team members. And I think the one of the worst things that a manager can have is not be honest with their employees about the, about the things they need to improve or opportunities they have to improve and being honest with them. Because if they don't, what happens is that you do not not really given the other person opportunity to improve and things just balloon to your place. Okay, this cannot be dealt anymore. And then unfortunately you have to part ways. And 
I think that the best thing you can do for anyone you work with is just be honest with them respectfully and come from a place that you truly care about them. Because if you're not doing that, you're really not setting, setting them up for success. And Fred Kaufman, who was a VP of uh, leadership at LinkedIn, has a really good blog post about this. He calls it, I'm trying to remember the name. He says, combustion engine and not a bomb. And he talks about it in terms of feedback. And he talks about how in relationship, the feedback loop should be around combustion engine, where it's okay to have this difficult conversation every once in a while, but that actually helps you move faster and better like an engine. When you don't have that, it just turns into a bomb. And then the entire relationship just, just implodes. And I found that to be a really interesting analogy. He's great with analogies and that's a good one. Just checking the time here and thank you for all of the time that you've given so far and for all of your openness and transparency. I want to just close it out by giving you a chance to talk about two things. One is the vision for BenchSci in the long term and how our values will help us to get there. And the other one is what keeps you up at night? Now, obviously we're in the midst of a pandemic and I'm sure that's part of it, but even beyond that, what are the things that keep you up at night that you think might prevent uh, us from achieving the vision? Yeah, uh, I'll start with the second question. I think it's an easier one. What really, and I get this question from every investor that I talk to about uh, potential fundraisings and, and so on, and I always got that question. I think that the things that really keep me up at night turn into our yearly goals as a company because i think those are the fundamental things that we have to deliver to continue and be successful so in a way to not keep me up at night they become our yearly goals and the reality is and i don't know how it is for other ceos but what does keep me up at night changes because we talked about tenacity and things not working according to plan i think that's just the reality and if you don't have that creativity and, and grit uh, to solve those situations, then I think it's going to be really hard. So sometimes nothing keeps me up at night and sometimes things do keep me up at night. And it's very much uh, a moment uh, in time. And for me, that also goes back though to our mentality as a company that we try and get ahead of problems. We try and think, okay, why did this not work out? And let's just get ahead of all those problems now so we don't have to stay up at night. So that, that's my perspective around that. What are the plans for BenchSign where we're moving? Our BHAG is to bring novel medicine to patients 50% faster by 2025. We build an amazing technology that is playing a central role in the, the way that medicine is getting developed and our impact of working with the largest pharmaceutical companies in the world just increases uh, year over year. And it's really remarkable to see the impact we're making on tens of thousands of scientists around the world and improving their ability to bring medicine to patients faster. That's where we are focused on in the next uh, five years. And I have no doubt that with that success, there will come more opportunities to continue and improve that process. It's a very long process and a very inefficient process today. It takes 14 years and costs over $2 billion. So I'm very excited for where we're going the next five years. And I'm also excited where we're going afterwards, which is continuing adding value and helping getting novel medicine to patients faster. Mm -hmm. Thank you. I actually would love to keep talking, but I know we're, we're running out of time. I don't know if there's anything that I didn't ask that you would have liked me to ask or any topics that we didn't touch on that you think we should have touched on. Can you think of anything? I have a question for you, Simon. Okay. Shoot. You're having been working with you for the last uh, over three years. I know how much you are intentional with your time and you only spend your time on projects and things that you think will add value. During this podcast is, is time consuming. Why did you decide that this is a good use of, of your time? That's a, a great question. I'll go back to a couple months ago. A couple months ago, if you remember, and I'm sure you do, you and I were talking about different ways that we can help enculturate <coughs> our values in a world where we're growing very fast. So a lot of people coming into the company aren't familiar with our history, our culture, our values. 
And also we want to be able to attract people like that. And we were working in a world where it was remote. So all of the, as you noted earlier, all of those cultural indicators that are just, you're, you're soaking in from the, the little messages that you might have on the walls to just seeing other people around you and how they operate aren't there. And we had talked about different ways that we could get our values out to the to people and help them to think about them. And so we did a couple of things. One of them is starting to write a regular blog post related to our values. And then the other one is, or one of the other ones is this podcast. And why I think it's valuable is twofold. So on the one hand, I'm hoping that all of us who work at BenchSci can get some insights and ideas from the podcast relating to our values of focused advancement with speed, tenacity, and transparency. So I hope to speak with people from BenchSci and also people outside of BenchSci who can speak to each of those values. And then people within BenchSci can pick up knowledge from that and help to apply it in their jobs. And the second one is I'm hoping that people listening to this who resonated with some of the things that we're talking about, who believe in values like being really focused and the importance of transparency, will start to think about BenchSci as a place that they want to come work. And one of the best ways to build your culture is to hire people who are already thinking the way that that you think or sharing the values that you share. And those are the people we want to be considering BenchSci as the next step in their career. And the hope is that with this podcast, we'll, we'll do that as well. So those are the, the two reasons. And I, I've had some experience with podcasts before where I was quite surprised at their reach. I think people underestimate the reach of podcasts these days. And so we thought, hey, why not give it a shot? Now, I will say that like everything else we do, this is an experiment. Will it work? I don't know. Is it worth a try? Relative to the amount of effort, I think the impact potential is there. And so we will see. It's a great answer. Thank you, Simon. Well, thank you, Liran. And with that, I think we're going to have to say goodbye. Thanks again for your time. And I look forward to speaking with you probably many times later this afternoon. <laughs> thank you, Simon. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to our inaugural episode of the Think Fast podcast. If you enjoyed this, you can find lots of related content on our blog, at blog.benchsci.com. And again, if you feel that what you heard in this episode resonates, maybe you'd be a good fit on our team. You can learn more about our culture and our open positions at benchsci.com careers. Until next time, be safe and think fast.